significant chapters in the Old Testament, uh, something that's referred to over and over again in the New Testament. We left off in verse 6 that says Abram was justified by faith. He was uh, reckoned righteous because of his belief in God's promise. And so here we have Abram, the believer, who has been made right with God, not because of something he has done, but because he held fast to God's word and God's promise. And that's where we're going. That's, that's us. That's us. We have that promise too. So that's just to set it up. I want to read it to you. We'll finish off chapter 15 starting in verse 7. And I want to talk to you about a God who is faithful to His covenant. Faithful to His covenant. Verse 7, back to 6. Then He believed in the Lord Yahweh and He reckoned it to Him as righteousness. Verse 7. And He said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I possess it? And so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they shall return here, For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. This is the very word of the living God. Well, before we launch into uh, what's got to be, to some of you, a very unusual story, I'd like to tell you a, a related tale. Two GOCers, a boy one and a girl one. Four years of college, four years of Friday nights, and they became friends. <laughs> you may have seen a story like this before. You may be in a story like this right now. Imagine with me that these two are graduating from college and making plans, and they both have big dreams inflicted upon them by their mothers. And, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. And they're both going to go to get their graduate degree. But they're going to different places. And it's senior year, and you know things happen senior year. Friendship turns to fire. And they, uh, they're, they're, it's getting serious. They, they, they're, I mean, they're friends. <laughs> and they're going to these two different schools. And I just want you to know, it's, we we're going to make this era a little different than this era. They don't have Snapchat. They don't have, they don't even have cell phones. This is back when dinosaurs ruled over the campus of UCLA. And they go to their different schools, graduated now and have that first semester apart. And back in those days, they would have had to write letters to each other. Can you imagine? LOL wasn't a thing. That meant lol back then. There was no text to send. There was just letters. And so he would write to her, and she would write to him. And he became increasingly convinced that he needed to ask her a question. 
And so in one of the letters, in this bold move, because sometimes in a letter you're willing to do something that maybe you know, empowers you a little bit because it's pen and paper and you're caffeinated or whatever. So he, he writes in this letter and, and says, building on all that friendship and all that affection, says in that letter, I want you to marry me. Seals it up and sends it. Come on, you like this story. And then he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And he gets a letter back. And he opens the letter up. And he's going to read it. He's going to read it right then. He's not going to wait till after class. He's not going to put it in his backpack for later. He's going to read it right then. And he reads it. And she says, yes. She does. She says, she says, yes. Yes, absolutely. I love you. I'll marry you. Yes. And they keep writing letters and they're going to see each other after the semester, right? But maybe he starts thinking because weeks go by and he starts to wonder Is she sure? Because he is, like all males, imperfect. (laughs) And he's aware of his reach. He's not shopping in his his aisle, maybe. And he just knows that maybe maybe she's had (laughs) maybe she's had a change of heart. Maybe, you know, she wrote that letter, but maybe her mind has changed and She's not with him, and, and so he wonders. And so I don't think you would, you would hold it against him to, to know that once they're reunited, he would want to ask her again, face to face, in a more formal way. Maybe it involves jewelry and an age-old tradition of taking a knee. He already has a promise from her, right? But he needs reassurance. He would like to have this situation ratified, formalized, for his own heart to be sure that this is really true, that this this dream is going to be a reality. May that story be your story. No, I'm kidding. No, I mean, I do hope it all works out for you guys. But I tell you that story because you understand that a promise can be, even in the one who holds on to the promise, in need of assurance, in need of further convincing. You see, we've been at this since chapter 12 and we've got five more chapters to go until you meet a sweet little baby that fulfills at least the very beginning of this promise God made to Abram. Five more chapters to go. And Abram's been through it, hasn't he? He was in Egypt and he relied on his own wisdom and and Pharaoh almost stole his wife. I mean, things went bad. And then he had great moments of faith and assurance and, and, and certainty that God's promise would come true. And, and he acted on that promise. And then, just in the beginning of chapter 15, he, he said, Lord, I'm still childless. And that wasn't that Abram is doubting the promise. It really was that Abram needed assurance. He needed a reminder. He needed some kind of concrete reinforcement. What Abram was asking for was a, was a covenant. And a covenant is a, an old word. It just means a legally binding agreement. It's something that builds on a promise. It's not different, but it ratifies a promise. 
It proves a promise. It's the difference between a question and a ring. It's the difference between a ring and the vows. It's enacted on. And what I want you to see tonight in Abram's story is not a man who's full of doubt or lacking faith. Remember verse 6 said, that famous verse, he believed in the Lord and, and the Lord reckoned his faith as righteousness. Abram is somebody who is in right standing with God, someone who's been forgiven by God, someone who loves God and trusts God. And if you're a Christian, a follower of God, a believer, you're in the same place as Abram. Whether you sang this song in Sunday school or not, those who have faith are children of Abraham. And what we see happening in this section is Abram gets assurance. And he gets it in the form of a covenant. And though this covenant is a very ancient version I think what you'll see through God's willingness to work with Abram in this way, to demonstrate God's commitment to God's promise, he meets with God's servant and, and gives him a sign, gives him a, a something tangible to hang on to, something that he can see, something that proves that that promise was worth holding on to. And I don't think God acts differently now than He did then. And I think when our faith needs reassurance, God is willing to provide that to us. And He does it in the same way He did it with Abraham. He does it by way of a covenant. But more on that later. Let me show you what, what I think God displays about Himself in this chapter. Just three observations about God as He ratifies, settles, reassures His servant and shows us that sometimes our faith needs assurance. First thing I see about God in this passage is, is really simple. Number one, He's a covenant-making God. A covenant-making God. That's what's explained to us in verse 7-10 through 10, that our God is a covenant-making God. He says to him in verse 7, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's Abram's pagan roots. God is saying to Abram, I, I've got you this far. I brought you all this way. And Abram's been blessed of God. He's got lots of possessions, but he's still technically a homeless person. He doesn't have a land. He doesn't have uh, a place as God had promised him. And so God wants him to see progress and says, I'm the one who brought you out to give you this land to possess it. And then in verse 8, Abram asks a question. O oh Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? I doubt that this is doubt. I doubt that this is Abram having this crisis in his faith because verse 6 says he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Instead, Abram is showing that he's a person. And people need assurance. People need uh, to, to see how this works out. You know, in, in life, we, we rarely can see how everything fits together. And if you have that kind of a personality that needs to know kind of everything about the week, some of my kids, it's weird, you have kids and, and they all have different traits. One of my kids here tonight, my, we'll call him my favorite kid, uh, my favorite son for sure, uh, he... He's different than me in some ways and similar in other ways. He's just a, he is a timely man. It deeply bothers him to be late. Me? I love being late. <laughs> I, I seek lateness. Lateness is my favorite. Not Owen. In the morning, he wants to get to school early. And if he has basketball practice, he wants to be there before it starts. One of my daughters, she's extremely organized. Also, unlike me, where are they getting these traits from? <laughs> and she writes down with meticulous detail everything she has to do that week. She's in middle school. What, she trying to go to UCLA or something? <laughs> so, people are wired different, and some of you really do like to, to know how things 
are going to work out. You want to know everything on the schedule. You want to know what, what the plan is. And the thing about trusting God is, is that He is invisible. That His promises are sure, but it's often very difficult to know what God is doing in the future because you haven't been there yet and you're not God, you're a person. And so plan as you might, God has this tendency and ability to surprise us and to confound us. And here's Abraham in the middle of trusting God, but still needing to know what's going to happen here. Because I'm not in Ur anymore, and I'm not in Egypt anymore, and I just fought a war and rescued Lot, and my wife is super old. Where's the child of promise? Where's the blessing to the whole earth? It's honestly a very good question. And as we talked about last week, God doesn't fault you for asking Him questions. Questions aren't antithetical to faith. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your questions. I think this is just a question of timing for Abram. He wants to know, how can he see this take place? And so God introduces this covenant because He's a covenant-making God in verse 9. And this is the weirdest shopping list you've ever seen. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's what's being served at the AFF and 424 Veteran tonight. (laughs) Wow. What's going on here? Well, here God is doing something not completely odd. It's something that Abram understood. You see, all over the ancient world, we have examples of covenants, of agreements, of formal treaties, even of simple business dealings that involve this same kind of thing. Probably the closest example we have of this is in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 34, you can jot it down, verses 8 through 12. Uh, In that chapter, there's a story of the Israelites. They're surrounded by an invading army. And the Hebrews had a custom of releasing their brethren who had been put into manumission, like a kind of uh, their version of a cultural slavery, but it was temporary. They were released every seven years, different than American slavery. This was something ancient Near Eastern, something that God Uh, permitted and had a lot of regulations on in the Old Testament. Every seven years they were freed. The seven years weren't up, but they thought they were up. And so they told their slaves, uh, their brethren, Hebrew brethren slaves, that uh, you're free because they thought they were toast. Invading army was all around. Well, something great happened. God provided a victory and, and they didn't die. Now here's the thing. When they told the slaves they were free, I think the slaves were very smart because they said, okay, let's do a covenant. And in Jeremiah 34, they do the same thing, cutting animals in half and and walking through that together, basically saying, we will keep this promise or what happened to these animals will happen to us. Kind of a big time spit on your hand, shake hands, blood oath. It's a, it's a very binding agreement. It's ancient, it's unusual, but that's what they did. And so, what you have God doing here is, is using something that was familiar to Abram. That would have been part of a, a land deal, or a business deal, or, or part of a, a ceremony that would bring clans together. And, and God is doing this to assure Abram of his promise. This isn't a different promise. This is the same promise that Abram was given in chapter 12, that was reaffirmed in chapter 15, verse 1, and now is being ratified in this covenant. Covenant, because God's a a covenant-keeping God. You see, God's willing to accommodate the faith of His servant. He's willing to show, to prove, to demonstrate His commitment, His trustworthiness. 
And it's a powerful moment in Abram's testimony that as he goes and gathers these animals at God's bequest and then goes about cutting them ceremonially as as he knew what to do. And you ask, why didn't he cut the birds? It's because you've never cut a bird. Cut a bird, mostly all you get is feathers. Not that dividable. And so he sets out these sacrificial animals. And the idea is, is that he's going to see God somehow show him that this is official. This is legit. His promise is trustworthy. And so he sets it up. He's a covenant-making God. So another thing about God I want you to see in this passage, a second thing, and it's not just that God is willing to make a covenant to ratify and formalize His promise. He's also a covenant-keeping God. A covenant-keeping God. And here's where if you pick up in uh, verse 13, and we'll come back and and grab on to 12. I don't know exactly what to take of verse 11 where some vultures come down and Abram drives them away. Uh, Some commentators like to say that you know there's always opposition to God's work. I, I don't know that that's what that means. I think that when you cut animals in half, vultures think it's dinner. So that that's all. Abram has to chase them away. It's a very very human problem in the midst of this, you know, very divine moment. It's interesting, but I don't make too much of it. Verse 13 though does show us something I think that's very important. Not just that God is willing to make, to affirm, to reassure his servant that his promises are are trustworthy but that god is going to do everything necessary to keep that covenant to keep it to ensure its truthfulness and god's promises are always going to be given and upheld in a real world like ours a world with vulture problems and a world with bigger problems than vultures verse 13 And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Whoa. I mean, that's heavy. You know, Abram thought things had gone difficult so far with the Pharaoh stealing the wife thing, with the marauding armies and the tar pits thing of chapter 14. Abram's already faced significant challenges, significant persecution, significant difficulties. He had to go toe-to-toe with the king of Sodom who's trying to bribe him and he sided with Melchizedek. He's been through stuff. But in God's upholding and ratifying His promise, He lets Abram know something. And it isn't that now that, that he can be sure of this promise, He's not going to have problems anymore. Instead, God gives Abram a glimpse of the future and gives him some very explicit details about the future. And it's not easy stuff. Your descendants, these promised people who Abram is waiting for and this covenant is proving that God will bring it about in his time will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years? God has told Abram that those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And now he just heard that this promised son and the promised descendants and the blessing to the earth and the protection of Yahweh and the the place of possession will be threatened. Not just threatened, but apparently by all outward circumstances undone for not a season, but for 400 years. This is something that is going to be after Abram's life. That's why he tells him, you'll live as for you. You'll go to your father's, verse 15. You'll be buried at a good old age. He tells him the nation whom they will serve and afterwards will come out with many possessions. You know, God doesn't come out and say that it's going to be Egypt at this point in the story. But... You know, in a literary sense, you can see it because that's exactly what happened to Abram in Genesis 12 when he went into Egypt, almost got his wife stolen, and then came out with all kinds of plunder. 
what's happening here is that God is showing us something about himself. He's showing Abram something about himself. He's showing us that God will always keep his promise. He'll always keep his covenant. But that doesn't mean that you'll have a problem-free existence. Here's the thing. I wonder if we're very honest with those who are weighing the claims of Christ. I wonder if we promise them in a way that over-promises. An over-realized eschatology. In other words, we tell them, hey, friend, friend in my dorm, guy I met in, in chem lab, whatever. You know, we've had these conversations and I, I've told you, you know, that your life needs Jesus. And you've admitted to me that, that you have a bad life, you know, that you're, your life is all messed up because of choices you've made. And, and maybe you've told them the gospel and told them that God loves them and that He sent His Son to take care of their sin problem. And you've told them that you have joy and you have peace with God. And, and I wonder if you've overpromised what it's like to be a, a covenant keeper with God. Because your life isn't perfectly easy, is it? I mean, yeah, your sins are forgiven and, and you have joy, but you've also seen troubles, haven't you? Some of you have seen extraordinary trials. Trials so hard that they've made you wonder, you know, I, I thought that God was for me, not against me. Why did this happen to my family? Why did my life go this way? Why do I have midterms? You know, it's that kind of real life that God is putting in front of Abram and showing him that though you hold on to a promise, an unassailable, unbreakable, ratified, assured promise, there will be trouble. And wasn't that the words that Jesus gave to His disciples? That though they would believe in Him, they would be handed over and they would be killed. They would be persecuted. That following Jesus wasn't going to make all their problems disappear. But it was going to solve their most significant problem, which was being under the wrath and hostility of God. See, following Christ doesn't make your life perfect. It makes you forgiven. And it promises you that someday a life to come will be yours. And life will be perfect someday. But in the meantime, God will be faithful to His promises. And sometimes faithfulness looks like 400 years or four generations. That's what He describes to them. See, God makes a covenant, but God reminds us that though we panic, and though we would love to know what the future holds exactly, he is not panicking. And he just gives Abram this little glimpse into this future promise and its fulfillment. Just a little parenthesis in it that sounds pretty terrible. 400 years of slavery for your descendants. You'll be buried at a good old age. Verse 16, in the fourth generation they'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And then there's all these peoples listed at the end of the promise in verse 19 and following. All that will be engaged in war with, with Joshua. Abram doesn't know who Joshua is. That's, that's a thousand years from this time. Think about that. The fulfillment of God's promises. We would love to see them all brought to full fruition and realization You know, maybe by senior year. Wouldn't that be nice? That way you wouldn't have to deal with that letter crisis I told you about. Come back, Jesus. Everything's easy from there. But God's promises are not on your timeline. And whether it's some difficult matter in your sanctification that you're struggling with, or whether it's big picture, God, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing with, with my purpose here? Know that though you are panicking, God is never panicking. 
He's operating on his timetable. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he peels back that curtain and he shows Abram that he doesn't just make covenants. He keeps covenants, even in the face of opposition. Well, the third and and I think most significant observation we get about God from this passage is that He's a covenant-sealing God. A covenant-sealing God. And this just shows us that it's not just another promise He makes, but there's something very tangible, something very memorable, something very covenantal, something that's a sign and a seal when God makes a covenant. And that's what we see in the, the center of this section. Really in a few verses. First starting in verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Wow. And that's when God gives him that word about the future. And it's in this kind of dreamlike vision and moment that God speaks to Abram. And Abram is completely asleep. I got up super early this morning. I was reading a Genesis commentary and then I was running some errands, doing some stuff. Uh, this afternoon, I started reading a, a really thick Genesis commentary. The author's name was Matthews. New American Commentary. And I was reading this section and then suddenly, I wasn't reading anymore. Instead, I was in a, in a lower position. And I woke up. (laughs) And I I still had the commentary. It was no longer here, but here. And I don't know, God didn't say anything to me, just so you know. (laughs) But it was just such an amazing event. As Abram slept, so did I. (laughs) It's a really boring commentary. So I don't really know what this part means. No, I'm kidding. So, (laughs) you see, there's a thing about sleep, is what I'm trying to say. It can overtake you like a thug. And God puts it on Abram, and he's out. He's zonked. He's sleeping. Like some of the brothers in the back corner. It's okay, they woke up. It's midterms, I get it. I literally fell asleep this afternoon. But I'm 40. What's your excuse? (laughs) So, what's up with the sleep? Well, as you know, sleep incapacitates you. When you go to sleep, you can't do anything else. And God puts Abram to sleep. There's a few times in the Bible where God does this to people. The first and most memorable one would be Adam, right? Puts him to sleep. He wakes up. Surprise. (laughs) Adam couldn't be involved in that. He didn't know how to do what God did. He didn't know how to make a woman out of a rib. And so God accomplished something while Adam was sleeping. Well, here's another occurrence in the Bible of God giving somebody some Z-Quil. And in that moment, He does minister to Abram, but... What's most significant is that because Abram is out, out cold, asleep, verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Smoking oven, that's a strange thing. You're thinking of, you know, your roommate's toaster oven and the neglect that's happened. It's not like that. This is a word for a fire pot. It could be relatively portable, of clay, used to bake bread, would have been part of the normal experience of a, a wandering Israelite kind of a man, a nomadic person. And so there's this fire pot with with embers in it that are burning, a smoking oven, and then a a flaming torch, which you're probably thinking like Indiana Jones, like a (laughs) flaming torch. But this word is likely like an oil lamp. 
And so one with these embers in it, that, that little oven thing, it, it didn't have fire going out of it. It would have had residual heat from embers. Kind of a long burn kind of a concept. And this little, this little torch is really these little oil lamps and they're used to illuminate. And so here you have both light and heat. And the light and the heat appear and they pass through these sacrificial animals that have been cut in half. This is a really strange story, isn't it? What's happening here is God is sealing a covenant. And to really understand it, I need to finish that story in in Jeremiah 34. Because remember when those Israelites told their slaves that you're free. They did that because they thought they were all going to die anyway. But when they didn't die, and God provided a rescue for them, they did something very underhanded and very hideous. And it wasn't just that these Israelites broke their promise. You see, they made a promise in the heat of the battle. The slaves must have known this is just a promise and suddenly it becomes a covenant. They cut that animal in half. They make this official. And then when the threat of war goes away, well, let me read to you what happens. Verse 12, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who's been sold to you and has served you six years. You shall send him out free from you, but your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. Although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Yet you turned and profaned my name. And each man took back his male servant, and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and your female servants. You see, they realized that they had overpromised. And though they had made a covenant, they broke the covenant, and they said, JK, you're still a slave. And they forced them back into it. And now God is telling them how He feels about a broken covenant. Verse 17, Thus, therefore, thus says Yahweh, you have not obeyed Me in proclaiming release to each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed My covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before Me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the court officials and the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. The judgment goes on. Fire burns their cities. All because of a broken covenant. They cut animals in half. And together with their slave that they said they had freed, they walked through that animal and said, if I don't keep my promise, may this happen to me. And God's going to hold them to it. That's called a bilateral covenant. Two parties enter in agreement and they walk through under the curse of death. What happens in Genesis 15 is different. And it's different in a very significant way. Because Abram is anesthetized. He's napping. He's out. And so he can't walk through. But God ratifies this covenant Himself 
He reaffirms the promise that He made in chapter 12 that He gave Him again in chapter 15 in kind of a partial version. And then symbolizing His presence with this fire pod and with this oil lamp of heat and light. He goes through those animals. And verse 18 tells us exactly what happened. On that day the Lord, Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then it talks about all the inhabitants of that land. This is not a bilateral covenant. In God's covenant with Abram, He gives him this this sign but he's so committed to ensuring that Abram knows that his promise is inviolable, that his promise is unbreakable, unwavering, non-conditional, that he doesn't let Abram walk through it. Instead, God walks through on behalf of both parties. This is problem theologically. But God did it, so it's not my problem. You see, God can't die. He can't curse Himself. But here, He promises that if He were to break this agreement, if He were to take back His words to Abram, I'm a shield to you, your reward shall be great if He's to take back the promise to be a great nation and a blessing and descendants and protection and this massive salvation that will come to all the earth, if God were to break that, then God would have to end Himself, not Abram. A theological impossibility. But apparently that's how serious God is about sealing His promise. About ratifying His Word. About proving His faithfulness. And He says, if it were possible, I would walk through this on your behalf and my behalf. And this deal would be unbreakable. This covenant would be unilateral. In other words, no matter what, Abram, I'm going to keep my word. The curse will be on the one who walked through the sacrifice. Do you understand what's riding on this covenant? What's writing on this covenant is God not only leading His people out of Egypt. What's writing on this covenant is not just God's promise to deliver them in a thousand years in the future after 400 years of enslavement in Egypt, though that is writing on it. What's writing on it is God's promise that Abram will be a blessing and his descendants will be a blessing. Those who have faith like his and the one who will come, that promised seed of Abraham, that that blessing will be to the whole world. In other words, if God breaks this, then the people won't be delivered from Egypt and the world won't be delivered from sin. And if God keeps this, the people will be delivered from Egypt and the world will be delivered from sin. This is a massive promise and it is not contingent on Abraham doing anything else because Abram has believed and it's been counted to him as righteousness. This isn't the only covenant or sign that God will make. In two chapters, he'll do a very painful one. But this one is the first and the greatest covenant that God makes with Abram. A covenant that reminds us that God will not only keep His promises, 
but He's willing to prove His promises to you. The Apostle Paul understood this story very well. And we looked at how he used it in chapter 4 of Romans last time, related to verse 6, but this particular part of the story he saves for his letter to the Galatians. And in this letter he talks about the story you just heard. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. A curse. Remember, that's the language from Jeremiah. And that's what happens to the one who, who breaks the promise after he's done this covenantal ceremony. He'll be accursed. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, Paul says. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The book of the law is a a summary way of talking about the Torah, about the Old Testament. And if you're looking for a short version of that, you could look to Exodus 20 and you could read the Ten Commandments. And you could know that that represents the standard of God. That you are to worship God and God alone. That you are not to worship anything else than God. Not bowing down to any idols. That you're never to use the, the Lord's name in vain. You're never to carry His name or bear His name in a way that brings Him dishonor. He told His people they have to keep a day for Him. A day that they owe to Him that belongs to Him. Closed on Sundays. The fourth commandment. He told them in the fifth commandment that that they have to honor their parents and that that commandment comes with a blessing. In the sixth commandment, he told them, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus reminds us that the real intention of that is, is in the heart, that if you've ever even hated someone in your heart, you've broken that commandment. The seventh commandment is that commandment about marriage, that mom and dad are supposed to stay together, that, that adultery is something that dishonors God and that hurts his heart. That any kind of expression of sexual immorality is a, a violation of the seventh commandment because God intended for marriage to be where that kind of covenant is kept. That eighth commandment reminds us that we can't take stuff that doesn't belong to us. That would include something little you stole when you were a kid so that you could eat church's chicken. Or it could include looking at someone else's answers. Or cheating on your taxes. It's stealing. Every one of these commandments, whether it's covetousness, the, the tenth commandment, whether it's stealing, the, the ninth commandment, all of them add up to indict sinners like Abraham, and like you, and like me. And so Paul says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So whether it's stealing or lying, commandment 8 and 9, if you've ever done that, you're cursed. Cursed by God because of His perfect, holy standard. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. No one can keep God's law perfectly. All we can do to be righteous, to be perfect, to be in right standing with God, to be declared right with God, is to believe. Well, how does that work with a righteous God? He says in verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. 
And then verse 13 is the most wonderful news of all. And the reason why God and God alone walked through those animals that day and put His servant to sleep and reassured Him of His promise by ratifying a covenant. And it's why you can know that every promise God makes to you as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, can be trusted because His promise in Christ has also been ratified covenanted verse 13 of of galatians chapter 3 christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to abraham might come to the gentiles through christ jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Why are we not cursed? If we have sinned repeatedly, if we have violated the law of God, the reason we are not cursed is because if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, He has taken the curse of God. He has accepted the curse of God on your behalf. Every promise The promise that God made to Abram is ratified in a covenant. And the promise that God made that all who will come to His Son to receive mercy and to to be forgiven and to know Him savingly has been ratified because Jesus has fulfilled the law of God perfectly by taking on the curse, the wrath of God on on the cross of Christ. On that cross as Jesus hung and died and endured the wrath of God, He ensured that God made a unilateral covenant with His people. A people who could not uphold their half of the bargain. A people who could not earn His favor. A people who could do nothing but believe and receive the gift of the Spirit to receive the Release from the curse of the law by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you need reassurance that God will keep His good promise to save you and to bring you all the way to heaven, if you've trusted in Jesus and you believe that that cross is where you find your salvation and where your sins are forgiven, all you need to do is look again to that covenant. Not that Abraham one, that's the root of this one. But that other covenant where that sacrificial perfect one died. He died on a cross in your place. And he initiated a new covenant with his blood. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Actually, perfect timing, I'm not against it. He initiated a new covenant with his blood so that all who would trust in him would not be, I liked it the other way, would, <laughs> would not be under the curse of the law anymore, but would be free and assured and forgiven and part of God's covenant people. Let me pray for you.